0: So, I was heavily pregnant, harvesting potatoes on my hands and knees while he was working somewhere else to, you know, off farm. And my in laws were there. And the other two, I don't even know, they were just like running wild while we're just trying to harvest potatoes. I'm having contractions the whole time. <laughs>
1: Welcome to Choosing to Farm, a podcast for first and returning generation livestock farmers and ranchers. To share their stories, find connection, and provide insight into the life of farmers who didn't take the traditional path, I'm your host, Jen Colby. This is Jen. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, two things before you get started with today's conversation. One, if you are a farmer or rancher, livestock farmer or rancher, anywhere between Maine and West Virginia who is a first-generation person or a person returning to a farmer or ranch after time away, I would love to talk with you. Thanks to funding from a USDA Grazing Lands Conservation Initiative grant, we'll be sharing your stories over the next two years. I'm super excited about that. So please reach out to me at choosingtofarm at gmail.com. Thanks. Second, we also need to make sure that these stories, your stories, reach even more of us. So please like or share or review these episodes. Um, Send them on to the friends and neighbors you know. They don't even have to be livestock farmers or ranchers. Some of our biggest supporters in the podcast don't actually have animals of their own. They just want to learn more about what you and I go through every single day just to do what we do. And this is an easy way for them to learn more about what we do. So today's episode um, is with Samantha and Chris Kemna. Um, They've been through a whole lot of different iterations in their farming journey from vegetables to diversified agriculture to dairy They have farmed at a range of locations around New York State, and most of the time that they've been doing this, it's been while having and raising four kids. They've learned a lot about what's a good fit for them and what's not. Here's Samantha and Chris.
0: So we are Chris and Samantha Kemna.
1: We run Clover Bliss Dairy
0: Farm. We milk about 40 jerseys, uh, grass-fed. Our farming journey started I don't know. In 2007, around the same time we started having our family, um, we did a vegetable CSA to start on rented ground. We added animals slowly. We did an animal, uh, you know, a meat CSA for a while. Um, we got really burned out on direct marketing, and we moved into dairying, which has not been easy, but it's not marketing either. So, like, we're, we're able to concentrate on the farming part. Do you have anything to add to that?
2: No, it has not been easy, any of it from the start. In the beginning, when we were direct marketing, the first couple of years were actually really good. The weather was, well, I won't say more predictable, but a little a little nicer to us. We were in the Hudson Valley when we started. Now we're in central New York with the organic dairy. But then we did have a couple of rough years with the weather and then rough years with more, interest in folks starting CSAs. So when we finished, there was 35 CSA farms serving the Albany area. Most of them were small. A lot of them have not made it.
0: Versus how many when we started?
2: When we started, there was a half a dozen, maybe 10. So it grew really fast. Consumers are fickle. They change their minds. Some folks want to try different CSAs, which I understand because you know, for instance, we were heavy on greens.
3: It's just something that grew Everybody well in has,
2: our soil. That's what they liked. And it, they grew well for us. And some folks didn't like that. So, you know, I didn't have a problem with that.
0: We also had a lot of turnover, like just people who didn't cook. You know?
2: <laughs> yeah, that was more for the yeah, meat CSA. That. <laughs> that, that was a kind of a surprise for us with the meat CSA. When we first started that, there was nobody else really doing it. There was one other couple that we knew of that were doing small animals. So chicken, poultry, I think they had a few pigs. We were doing grass-fed, grass-finished beef, pastured pork. We had turkeys. We had broilers also and egg layers. We had 200 egg layers. Did a little wholesale with those too. fed them certified organic grain. And uh, the first couple of years we had a waiting list, which was pretty nice. Uh, so we grew scaled up. And again, it was just weird to, to see that people weren't able to eat 10 pounds of meat in a month or 20 pounds, whatever it may have been, whether they bought a small share or a large share. and That was kind of a surprise, like what's going on? So we started having more turnover. I started asking people like, why, why are you leaving? You know, is there something wrong with the quality? And they're like, no, the quality is great. And they're like, we just found out that a lot of the younger folks, so this is what, 10 years ago, they wanted to go out to happy hour with their friends and weren't cooking at home. And then, you know, the older folks that were our age or a little bit older, you know, they had families trying to pinch pennies where they could. And they were saying, okay, well, you know, we want to eat like this. So they were willing to to do it because they saw the value in it. It was, you know, a mixed bag, depending on what you got. Um,
0: I think for us too, like, I really think that the bigger part was the marketing. Like it was yeah. when social media was starting to take off and we just were not catching up with that. And it felt Like, not everybody's personality is that, you know, in your face. And it felt very uncomfortable for me to be making social media posts all the time that were like, here I am, buy my stuff. You know, we felt like the product should sell itself and it wasn't quite that easy. So, um, totally. Yeah. Well, that and along the way, we had four children. So, you know, we were dealing with baby stuff and crazy weather and harvest. So it was, yeah, just it was a journey. But it felt yeah. like a relief actually when we started just getting a milk
1: check and shipping the milk. You know, it's yeah. What what? So to go from vegetables to I like I I have I I see often like a vegetables to chickens or a vegetables to even meats like a more diversified. I don't see a lot of vegetables to dairy. So how did you how did you get into vegetables to begin with? And then was it just the lack of marketing in dairy, or was it like did you have a, interest in dairy on its own we were milking family dairy
0: cows by hand so
2: and we had the beef animals they're they're, they actually you know the heifers the first group of heifers i bought were the group that kind of taught me to be more observant and how to graze and then i figured all right if i can graze these you know cow calf pairs plus finishing angus angus cross steers in 22 to 24 months if i could finish them then I can do dairy, which is not exactly the best way to think about it because they are a different animal. Producing milk takes a lot more energy out of the cow. And we can get into that later about the craziness that we saw with the dairy cows and how there's very few of them that can actually handle grass fed.
3: Right.
2: I would love to talk but, about that. Yes. But the the grazing part was what I really liked. You know, I grew up around animals my whole life. It was more of a traditional farms that I worked on that were either beef or, or dairy replacements. And they just kind of set them out to pasture and for the summer. And the farms I worked on, the one, main one, we had plenty of grazing land, so it was never an issue. But by the time I was done working through high school and then managing it when I was in college, I couldn't get the landowners to, to change their mind about how to graze. Oh, yeah. And we started seeing a lot of weed species come in spotted knapweed was the biggest one once that comes in it takes over and it's it's hard to get rid of
3: Yeah.
2: but the, the cows are I, what I like to be around most of the time and when you sit down and, and you know there have been many studies and uh, many universities have looked at it and said hey if you can do grass fed there's actual real money in it right. um, they don't talk about the journey to get there though
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's a long one isn't it <laughs>
2: Yeah, well, you know, it's funny because years ago, a guy named Frank Johnson, Sweet Tree Farm in Skaharie County, when I was working on Honest Weight food co-op, he was the main meat guy that I was buying grass-fed, grass-finished beef from. And he was like, look, Chris, it's going to take 10 years at least, no matter who gets into this, because the cows have to come to your farm. They have to get used to your soil. You have to get used to the breeding, figure out what works for you. And he's like, and then you're also going to have to build clientele. So honestly we're in year seven now with the dairy and it's three years is probably right where it's going to be okay finally we're we're not just you know paying our debts and staying above you know above water it's okay now we can actually you know replace some equipment and do some other things but we're still two or three years
0: away from that yeah yeah And starting with vegetables, which was kind of the question you started with, it was just an easier, like it was something we could get into cheaply. And like when we first started, we really were kind of afraid of debt. So we were trying to do it with money that we had saved and really not take on debt. So that was really what started. And we both, we do like to grow things, right? Um, but ultimately our goal had been, Animals, gotcha. you know that that was what we wanted. So
2: well, that and, and also it, it was you know th- we had ideas of what we wanted, and then also we went to a Nova conference one year and we heard Mark and Kristen Kimball talk, and we we're like, "This is awesome! We want full oh, food." Full
0: food CSA. <laughs> that was that really was what yeah, we wanted. That's to what do. I
2: wanted. I wanted and, to do uh, raw milk and cheeses and eggs and butter and have you know oh fifty what? people come to the farm every week and pick up their produce and, and whatever how? else. But yeah.
0: honestly, we yeah. ate. Like when we had everything, like we just, it was amazing the way that we ate. <laughs> yeah, like we would have parties at the farm and it would be, you know, lots of meals that were entirely produced on the farm. And, you know, like a table full of heirloom tomatoes, like every color, shape and size. I don't know. It, we, we really, yeah, we used to joke cool with, with, with we did.
2: folks that we knew you know, here we are, broke farmers eating better than the president of the United States, (laughs) you know, Uh, because we were, I mean, everything was fed certified organic grain. We grew non-GMO seeds. A lot of our vegetables were heirlooms. Um, And it was just the food that we did eat was amazing. Our friends and family and, and just, you know, acquaintances that would stop by to help on the farm or whatever. They were like, I've never had a meal like this before. So that was awesome. But. and the
0: journey to dairy too, in part, like as soon as the kids were starting to be weaned, I was going out of my way to buy raw milk. You know, we definitely really feel strongly about the health benefits of raw milk.
3: Yeah.
0: So that was part of what led us to that. You know, we were buying raw milk and then we got family cows and we were milking them by hand. And How many I don't cows know, it did it like take good... to
1: feed four kids? <laughs>
2: Well, yeah, I mean, they still we, beg for mozzarella cheese every day during the Oh supper. my
1: gosh. I made <laughs> used to make butter
0: and cheese and yeah. I did a lot more with it when they were the, you know, there were eight gallons of milk in the extra refrigerator at all times. <laughs> so we didn't really like, ideally I would someday like to be permitted to sell raw milk and, and do that because I would love to be able to offer it to more people. Um, just yeah. right now, it's been, well, it's more cumbersome in New York. I forgot you're in Vermont.
1: Well, I was going to ask you, so, I mean, I know it really can wildly vary from state to state, and we now have a two-tier system, but that's different than, like, Connecticut. They can just sell it in stores, and what what is it like in New York? What's, what are the raw milk regs? It's like, I don't know, selling crack cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> it's
2: oh, it's a class to, two, it's, it's, okay. It's harder to sell it in crack
0: cocaine. <laughs> oh, my goodness.
2: It's, it's not a difficult process to get into it, per se. You know, an inspector is going to come out. They're going to look at your farm. They're going to tell you what you need to change. And I, I get that they're about the food safety. But at the same time, why are we not cracking down on spinach and lettuce and, you know, 10,000 pounds of ground beef being recalled or whatever it might be. Right, right. Where, you know, if I have my milk tested and it's safe, then you should leave me the hell alone. You know, I get that. Again, I understand the food safety thing. And, you know, we've communicated with other people that are selling raw milk. And, you know, they have information. They're like, look, you know, four people got sick last year from raw milk, that they can actually trace it back to the milk. Other people, you know, maybe you were touching chicken at the same time you were born a glass of milk. I mean, who knows, but you're going to blame it, you know, doctors and and state officials always want to blame it on the milk. Nothing else. Right. So.
0: Well, and New York's policies are not, they're not going to change anytime soon. I mean, we've, we've had conversations with, you know, the director of ag, like not me personally, but I work with NOFA and, you know, it's definitely come down there. There's that will not be changing. Those policies are. are and,
2: And big ag here, Farm Bureau and large confinement dairies don't want to see it because they say, well, you know bad publicity about raw milk is bad publicity about milk yeah 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 no absolutely
3: but the people want it you know
2: there's a lot of illegal meat milk that goes into you know downstate new york every day whether it comes from pennsylvania or new jersey or wherever it might be so it's it's there but you know wouldn't it be better to have it be a little easier and have that money actually stay in New York State and cycle around our communities more. I mean, for me, that's that's a huge one.
1: That's a that's a I I think a big I argument. Think the argument got they it, got, it. got it going in Vermont because it, and there was a requirement and there it still is a requirement as far as I know that the the consumer has to be able to um, have access to the farm that they're buying their milk from. So they may not pick it up there if they're a tier two, so that can be delivered to them, But, but, but they have to be able to go see the farm. And I actually, that's a piece of that that I always just really appreciated, like that a consumer should have the right to go see the farm that they buy their food from. And right. that in itself is just a huge transparency thing that right. that you just don't get in the store necessarily. Right. And I understand, like, yeah, why why they might come be really hard on it if you can only buy it in the store and you can't access the the place that's actually growing the food, raising the animals.
2: Right. Well, in New York State, you have to buy it from the farm.
1: Right. Oh, right. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. You know, you
2: have to come to the farm. Yep. Whether that's you know the farm store or right there on the on the farm where they have it in their refrigerator, it's not necessarily a store, but yeah. So
1: yep. anyway, so how do you guys? Have, so you're not marketing your milk because you are working with somebody. Who do you? I mean, forty cows isn't, isn't a raw milk farm, right. <laughs> um, for most people. But, uh, right. So who do you who do you market through? Who do you sell your milk to? So we
2: we ship to Organic Valley. Mm-hmm. We're on a we're on a grass milk route. Yeah, um, we used to ship to Maple Hill, and they're just yeah. not very friendly to smaller sized farms. So yeah. we said it's time to go somewhere else.
1: Doing a grain fed, and then transitioned into doing grass fed with them, or have you just always been? Because if you're with Maple Hill, they just do grass fed, right? Right, or is it both? Yes. Well, okay.
0: although when we well, so we have always been grass fed. Right. Gotcha. So we, grass only, grass only, grass only grass fed. Okay. Just, yes, sorry. Yes. 100% grass fed. That's how we were with our beef animals. That's what our family dairy cows were. We never fed them grain. So, you know, that's more of a philosophy than about the pay. But when we, so 2016, we signed on with Maple Hill. We picked up our family and moved to a dairy farm in Washington County. Wow. At that time, Maple Hill was also picking up. So they were only selling grass fed milk, but they were, I think, hoping to woo some grain fed farmers over. So our truck, even though we were producing grass milk, was going on with also organic grain fed milk. Gotcha. And, you know, going on the organic market. So it wasn't even used in Maple Hill products. Um, 2018 we got a cancellation letter from them um so we weren't really ready to be done with shipping milk like we had only really just started so in 2019 we relocated our family and the farm out to central New York uh, with a, a story in between but we ended up on a farm uh In Southern Chenango County, we still were shipping to Maple Hill, but then, you know, some of their policies were unfriendly to small farms. As we said, the the hauling costs for us last summer were in the range of $10 per hundred weight for a farm our size, with prices a lot down from where we had started. They weren't paying well for components, you know, not to, like, I don't I don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole, but we called them and asked to cancel our contract. We had been trying to get in with Organic Valley, but we did not have a contract with anyone when we left Maple Hill. Um, and we had one month where we dumped milk. Um, And we're able, during that time, some people we knew helped pull some strings. And we got in with Organic Valley last November? Yeah. October, November. October, Uh, we dumped milk. November, we started being picked up by them. And it has since been a a far more stable market, for sure. Oh, good. You
2: know, it's nice getting paid for our, we have a Jersey herd so our our protein components, and yeah, the components our, and like our butter good. fat it's yeah. been nice to see to actually get paid for that hauling is
0: okay. far more reasonable i don't know
2: 20 percent maybe of what it was with maple hill
0: that's amazing. Uh,
2: oh yeah well they're they're passing on as much as they can to the farmers yeah so yeah. you know it is a farmer owned co-op so it should be more transparent <laughs> we all own the company. Yeah. so but yeah, we've been grass-fed grass grass only. So we are certified organic and certified grass-fed through OPT. And what's OPT? Organic plus trust. so oh. that that oh, yeah. is something that the industry kind of pushed for, mostly through Organic Valley and Maple Hill to have a standardized grass-fed label because before, NOFA New York had their own, PCO had their own. And, and they had different
0: standards. They had different you know, it was standards different different length of time on grass, different amount from pasture, but. Right. Yep. Wow.
2: So yeah, it got pushed to to be a standardized thing. So now like folks over in Vermont could be certified NOFA or so, yeah, certified NOFA Vermont and have the OPT grass fed. So, gotcha,
1: so it's, yeah, so it's national. So it's a right. na- consistent national certification.
3: Right. Gotcha. Right.
1: So what did it feel like? I'm just thinking about marketing and diversification, diversification in particular as, as like a, as a, a risk mitigation strategy. You know, if one thing's not doing well, then another thing theoretically is doing well. What did that feel like to, to like give your notice at Maple Hill, not knowing I mean, you're because you're so focused in, in one product now as compared right. to what you did before. Like, what was that like?
0: You know, it's funny because you would, I don't know about you, I felt more relief
3: oh. than anything.
0: It was like getting out of a bad relationship.
2: Well, I think she's talking about getting our cancellation letter the first time in Argyle. No. Yeah, I think, is that what it, you were talking about? Sorry. So, like,
1: I'm just, well, no, when you, when you guys told the, told Maple Hill that you wanted to leave them. So the okay. second, so the second,
2: the second time, okay. the
1: second time, like you said you didn't have a OV online yet with you. Right. So right. you're kind of jumping off a cliff. I mean, like we were, but the way like? I looked at it
2: was, I, I don't, I didn't want to stop.
1: Yeah.
2: I had been talking to folks about processing milk also. Yeah into yogurt possibly some other you know drinkable yogurts maybe doing bottling but that was a whole nother ball of wax to get back into there's only so much room on the dairy shelf so put that on the back burner for sure not having to deal so back up for a second here so every time so i will back up Multiple years now. So we used to get <laughs> Perfect. all kinds of letters from April Hill. When things were going well, it wasn't a bad thing to open up the letter and find out that we were going to get a dollar increase or whatever it may have been. And it started with, well, we were paying no hauling when we started. And in six months, well, we're going to charge you $180. And then it went to $360 the next year. And then the next year it went to $720. And then in October, we, they were like, oh, well, things are getting bad in the market, so we don't know what's going to happen. And then it was, well, we're going to reduce the overall pay price because the market's changed. And we were on a blended route, which we knew that that's where they were losing their money. And then we got a letter saying, sorry, we're going to cancel your contract June 1st of 2019. This is two weeks before Christmas. Our FSA loan officer was like, "Oh my God, what are you gonna do?" And we were like, "We don't know yet." The only option we had at that time was go to Horizon, and we would have went from mid forty dollar one hundred for our milk to Horizon paying twenty two fifty. And I was like, "That's not an option."
1: We were paying twenty two fifty. I thought they were twenty two fifty
2: at that time for, for for organic milk.
1: Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah, at that um, time, it was yeah, low.
2: Yeah, so we were looking at farms out here. I was traveling a lot, trying to find a farm that we could move to. None of them panned out. April 28th of 2019, my appendix, or 2018, which one year was it? 28th.
3: 2018.
2: my appendix ruptured. So that was the first thing that FSA was like, are you getting out? And I was like, no, mm-hmm. I'm going to be down for a little bit, but I'll be fine. <laughs> threw Sam under the bus. She had left the cows all by herself. (laughs) Um, Oh
0: my gosh. Yeah. We've had a lot of, a lot of bumps in the road with the dairy farm. Yeah.
2: So 2018 we got the fall winter. We got that letter 2019. There was an in-between stopover. That was awful. I do not want to get into that. And then we were able to move to this place after six month period, which was rocky in the beginning also. And then it just, It never really came up from there because we had COVID hit. That was a huge turmoil for a lot of people. Trying to find quality feed out here was an issue. We're surrounded by large confinement dairies. You know, there's 500 to the north. There's 1,200 to the south. A little further south of that is 3,000. We're a hillside pasture farm. Not a lot of good hay ground around. So, there's been some struggles, you know, we're still trying to figure things out, but things are looking up. Um, the spring was our best year production wise and pay price wise. So, Good. but I got to say, it's still crazy to see all the things we've gone through. I still would rather be doing this than growing vegetables for a CSA.
1: Then <laughs> um, that, then that like says you're in the right place, right? <laughs> you're yeah. like, as bad as it ever gets, I'm so glad I'm doing this thing. <laughs> right. Right. Like well,
2: and, and with the CSA, you know, you have one hailstorm come through and you can lose your whole crop. Yeah. Even if, you know, yeah, yeah. Okay. Maybe you're growing some stuff undercover, but it's not, it's not enough. And unfortunately today, most people well, don't understand the real meaning of CSA.
3: Right. The
0: risk.
3: And the we also, the, right.
0: You should mention, I mean, we've, we haven't ever had hired help. Right. Like we had two summers where we had. It's always interns, been you guys. Yeah. But it's, you know, one hundred percent. Yeah. You and some, depending on what stage of pregnancy. <laughs> Sometimes. <maybe. laughs> right. Yeah.
2: With well, the vegetables, that was that was difficult. There's no doubt about it.
1: That's something no. that I don't think it's talked about enough. Is is that I think there, we know the dairy is a long day. I mean we know that we know that there's there's work at both ends of the day and then there's the middle of the day too. But but I I don't think it gets talked about quite often enough the the labor needs in vegetable production that is oh, yeah. just radically different than the labor, like there are greater land-based needs for livestock, but not necessarily yeah. the labor needs because the animals actually feed themselves and spread their manure and move if yeah. if we do our grazing management well. So,
0: so that was actually the other thing that brought us to dairy from where we were. It oh. was less, labor involved.
2: Right. Yeah. So many people asked me when I said I was going to, we were going to start a dairy farm. They're Like, are you out of your mind?
0: Well, it's cl- like, clearly it's a bigger commitment because yeah, they, bigger the cows have absolutely. to be milked twice a day, every right. day, 365.
2: Right. But, but, but the seasonal intensity of growing vegetables got old. Yeah. My seventh year, I was like, I should have quit last year. Oh yeah. Cause it was just, again, between the weather the hot weather, I run hot as it is, just temperature wise, and my attitude is hot. I'm short-tempered, <laughs> and you throw on top of that, ninety-degree weather, yeah, and no rain, yeah, and I'm a bear. Oh, yeah. so, so at least you the barn. It was let's get <laughs> let's get out of here. Although exactly. the barn does get hot too with the you know, I was just saying oh, wow. you know last night it had to be one hundred and five to one hundred and ten in the barn with the fans going. And I was sweating. My daughter's in there. She helps me quite a bit now. She's older. But yeah, it, it was hot. And she's like, this is this is hot, Dad. <laughs> so I'm like, yeah, just think about how the cows feel.
1: Totally. You know? Totally. You right. don't have like, yeah, they've got the they've got that furnace.
2: Yeah. <laughs> that exactly. room just creates
1: so much heat in what yeah. it does too. Yeah.
2: Right. Right.
1: So so a thing that I'm kind of wondering. If if you don't mind talking about this, so you guys have moved a few different times. Have you been leasing these these farms or renting them, or you haven't? But have you been buying each time? You haven't been. No, <laughs> no we have leased each time. Yeah. What's up? So Neither
0: one of us came from a farm family or any kind of money in our background. So yeah, we've just kind of done it on our good credit, and <laughs> and we've yeah we've leased the farms that we've been on. We are hoping to be able to buy the farm we're on now, right. um, and just needed to get a little more stability.
2: Yeah, I mean, we were we were in the talking process of buying the first dairy farm we moved to.
0: Yes, we actually we did intend to buy that, and right. then when the milk market fell through, and there are no grass milk routes over there, right. um, So it just wouldn't have. Wouldn't yeah,
2: have yeah. and 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 at that time, like right before, so 2018, New York State was going pretty heavy into farmland preservation and they had a special one just for dairy farms. So whether you were, you know, taking over the dairy farm from somebody that was one tier. Another, Another one was let's, you know, preserve farms and ASA in Washington County is very active in preserving farmland. We were talking to them, FSA knew that we were talking to them and honestly, it's really the only way we would have been able to really afford the farm is if we sold development rights. For whatever reason, farmland in Washington County is overpriced in my mind. But it's where we were. We had a market. And we were like, okay, it's not, it's not awful. But there's there's even more pressure over there on large conf- from large confinement dairy farms than there is even out here. But, you know, it was, our kids were just starting to get into the community, you know, They played little league. They played soccer, you know, starting to make friends and and then things happen, you know, life, life throws you curveballs or lemons or whatever. And you, you, you know, you make lemonade or, you know, you pick yourself up and you do the best you can and and you move on.
0: At this point, um, because we moved to this farm right before COVID. So we were actually lucky. We're at the end of a dead end road. There's state land around us. So, the kids went to this school for a couple of months right. and then everything shut down. So we nice. were just, you know, just here at the end of the road. Hanging out. Kind of. <laughs> Hanging it, out, homeschooling. But, you know, it was a good place to have to be during quarantine. Absolutely. It, it, honestly,
2: this has been a crazy ride. But. You know, some someday we'll probably write a memoir about.
1: You know, <laughs> I all, think all more farmers should should write memoirs.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's been a crazy trip. I, I still enjoy it. Um, you know, like. Every time that a calf hits the ground, I'm like, this is awesome.
1: Oh, yes. And that's, it's a miracle it's, every time. You, you know? know, you have animals. Too. I do. Yeah. I do. Yeah. And it is. You know? It's like, I don't know. With with our, we have hair sheep and they are Kat- uh, Katahdins. And they so they come in every color. And I'm like, oh, it's like Christmas. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> what are oh, the colors yeah. going to be? Are there going to be stripes or spots or something? Like, yeah, it's, I just love that part. Well, and, yeah,
2: you know, and that's cool. another thing in the future too, maybe start doing a little more yes multi-species we, grazing.
0: We would like to diversify it again.
2: Yeah.
0: yeah. Um, because well, I felt like we used to have a lot more sort of homesteading type goals and it was do
3: so we still have goals? I feel like goals, we, we do,
0: but we sort of put everything there. on hold because we went from kind of having this attitude of like what's one more thing just you know just get them we'll figure it out when they get here. And it was really willy nilly and everything was just a mess all the time. And when we decided to dairy, we just had a conversation with each other and we were like, we need to focus on this because it is really different than what we've done before and we need to do it well. So, you know, we really backburnered everything. And now before we diversify again, we need to take care of making sure we have the right infrastructure before we have... Pigs and sheep and goats.
1: Can I just tell you how how much I'm feeling this right now? Because because I've downsized a bit as well. So I'm just just doing sheep right now and not doing some of the other things that I've been doing. And just how do I just do this well? And then I will eventually maybe add things back again. But yeah. I need I want better infrastructure. I have a whole bunch of yard stuff to clean up. I mean, it's like I want things to be. What happened? Like, did we get old? <laughs> that's now we want neat neat things like we want fewer neater things is that like an age (laughs) yeah
2: i I don't i don't have the energy i used to have so that's you know that's a big one for me like i said the hot weather bothers me pretty bad now so to think about moving sheep and goats right now on top of everything else i'm like no no let's not do that right now i
3: totally get
2: that so But you know we've
3: I mean, nice. we've got a hilly
2: a hilly farm and it would be nice to to not have to you know get on the tractor and brush hog the multi rose bushes and just fence it out and put goats on it
1: totally. and see what they can do. <laughs> totally, they would take it down.
2: <laughs> well, I think that they probably will. I mean, that's what everybody tells me that they'll yeah. do. You know, well, we've got some other weed issues that we're trying to get rid of too. You know, goldenrod keeps creeping in from the hedgerows, which with the beef cows it was easier to manage that because they would eat it totally the beefers were awesome i miss them actually they were easier to take care of less management they were hardier their calves seemed to grow a lot fat and granted they were sucking on their mamas so of course they're going to grow faster they had access to a 24 7 but they would eat everything and they again back to what i said how i had to change my grazing management yeah when i would put the when i put the beefers into a new paddock they would all come around me when I opened, you know, lower defense or whatever I, however I got them into the new paddock and they would line up and they would just start eating and walk the whole distance, just eating the whole time. Now, the dairy cows, they want to go in and they want to pick over here and then they want to walk 20 feet and pick over there. And I'm like, girls, you're wasting so much grass. And I leave residue. I know I have to feed the soil microbes. I don't have an issue with that. But the amount of walking that they do kills me sometimes
3: yeah.
2: <laughs> and they're just so picky of what they want and you know they'll eat some weeds early in the spring they love dandelions they'll eat some of the chicories early of course the, the grass and the clovers uh, but you know early on they'll nip at a couple of goldenrod or some other weed species I'm noticing the heifers lately they've been eating the new growth of multiflo rose bushes.
3: Oh
2: so well all it, it makes sense because that's where the energy is, that's where the nutrients are. It's not as, as you know woody fiber. Um, and they're
1: growing up this on this, says, on this yeah. farm, right? So so I mean so where did your cows originally come from? Is this the same group of cows that you had through the multiple moves and where did they originally come from? We have
2: animals from all over the dang place unfortunately. The first herd we bought from a farmer in southern Vermont. Kind of a bad a bad thing happened. Her husband died and oh yeah, yeah. So we bought those cows and I don't know, a year or two later we found out that they may not have been grass fed. Oh, so we were possibly lied to. And after seeing the condition, you know, maybe they were fed grain and maybe they were grass fed for 60 days before I picked them up because they didn't continue to feed them grain because they didn't want to pay for it. Yeah. So they came to our farm and they were in pretty bad shape. We got them back up in weight. They put on condition. We got them on our good mineral program because they were devoid of minerals. Yep. They weren't breeding back. Some weren't even bred.
0: Well, and we needed more. So we bought, yeah, we've, right. we and, bought a couple of herds and then right. some animals here and there. Right. And now we're finally at a point where the majority of our herd is animals right. that we've raised. Right. Yeah, that's gotcha. right. Those original herds. We don't really have many animals left.
2: Yeah, I think from the first herd, we don't have any animals from the first herd. We have what, one, two, two or three daughters and a few other young stock that are not, you know, not bred yet. Second herd, probably a, a little bit better, but not a whole lot. Um,
0: well, after the fact, like the first farm that we were at, we had a lot of cows that had high somatic cell count and we yeah. could not figure out. Why? Huh. Yeah. Like, we tried everything that anybody suggested. Mm -hmm. After we left, Chris read an article about- No, six months before we left. Oh. I don't know. He read an article about stray voltage and how that can cause, for like, some cows are a lot more susceptible to it. Absolutely. We had sold, what, like 30 cows so that we couldn't get the somatic cell count under control. And we were like, we can't put their milk in the tank. Right, right, right. Like there's no visible mastitis. We don't know why they're like this. So that was a really, that event almost broke us too because it was like. Yeah,
2: Yeah, I mean, we were on test. I was, sometimes I was having DHIA come out and test every two weeks to find out what the hell was going on. Like Sam said, we were CMTing them, no visible signs of mastitis. I got into multiple fights with my milk inspector at the time because I went online every night to find out what's going on.
0: So, but there was a spot in the barn where every time I would bend down to clean a cow there, I would get a shock off the metal post. And I was like, Chris, something's going on here. And he never got the shock. Yeah. But I think we had stray voltage in the barn that was causing those issues. We had stray
2: voltage, definitely had it, you know, because it can be down to a half a volt and that will mess with the cows. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then years later, I read a book. I think it was, I think it was Dr. Detloff's book. He was a veterinarian out in yeah. Wisconsin or Minnesota, something like that. And in there he talks about stray voltage on a farm and how he had never seen one. And then he saw a bunch of them in a row. And if your barn is north of your power pole, there's a high likelihood you're going to have stray voltage issues. Because you don't get shocked by the electricity, you get shocked by the ground. Right. So with the, this is gonna get a little deeper, but with the the electromagnetic system of the earth, our current goes to the north, to the North Pole. So that's why when you have your power pole, if it's not grounded quite right, it's always gonna go north and
0: if your barn is if there. your
2: born is, barn is north of it you're going to have issues so you have That's to have extra sure. grounding in your barn you have to have extra grounding on the pole where the transmitter or the transformer is yeah so yeah like i said it's there's been a lot of things that have happened wow. but yeah i mean it's crazy because to have cows with a million a million you know somatic cell count was crazy but no real visible signs. But no
1: visible, yeah, because, yeah, usually, usually there's Usually there's obvious. some kind even if, of Even if you can't ever something. fix it, like, at least you know it's there. Like, right. yeah. Right. These right. are
0: tough. And then with some of them, it would be like the one test, they'd be fine. The next test, they'd be high. And it would, yeah, yeah they were just all over. But you never yeah. saw huh. a difference in, right. you know, huh. looking at the milk. Like, there was no visible.
2: Right, yeah. right. Yeah, so I ended up, like I said, going online and finding papers, studies from European Union. And the Danish scientists were the ones who were like, look, we have not been able to see a significant difference between a somatic cell and a white blood cell. And in this country, we test milk differently. Most of it's with a computer looking through a microscope. They do not distinguish between somatic cells and white blood cells. Oh, interesting. So over there, our somatic cell count was always high. Because yeah. the cows were always under stress, had a tremendous amount of white blood cells that were not somatic cell count, or somatic cells. I mean, but it got counted, and, and kinda, you know,
3: yeah,
2: it was tough.
1: Yeah, it was tough. Wow, it a learning yeah.
2: experience, and you know, hopefully, you know, it's, it's what I tell people now? You know, if they're having issues, it's I, I have a tested for somatic cell count <laughs> or for for stray voltage. I mean,
1: yeah. So. Yeah, I think I think sometimes if we if we don't if we don't get shocked or we don't know then it's something that's just not even on our radar screen and right, right. yeah
2: well I mean there's been times when say, Samantha and I would go move fence because that was pretty much the only time we had together when the kids were younger i <laughs> I'd, I'd you know, move fence and not get shocked at all, she would barely touch it and be laying on the ground like, you you set the powers
0: off. (laughs) Whoa, wow.
2: So uh, that's our different astrological signs too. Water, (laughs) up (laughs) fire. One more So.
1: (laughs) Well, with the different, the different locations and the different experiences of the, of the herds and the, and the various animals, it, it does make sense. You've been in this current location longer than the other places. And if so now it totally makes sense that your heifers would begin to eat a wider diet at this right. location because they've settled out. You know, they've sort of figured right. out what is good and what is what is like nutritionally they're getting good nutritional feedback. So that's cool. I mean it'd be really great if they continue to eat a broader diet where they are. Um yeah. Well we've always we've noticed that with our heifers.
3: Yeah.
0: That Our home raised heifers. Yep always graze better than yeah. animals that we've brought in yeah but totally. your grazing style is a lot different too it's a lot
3: more intense
2: yeah yeah i'm very adaptive in my grazing i don't fit into any of one of the boxes you know i've it started with mig right well, actually it started with rota- rotational grazing is what it started <laughs> at and then it moved to mig <laughs> And then, you know, you had all these different branches of people saying, no, you got to do it this way. You got to do it that way. And Alan Savory saying, you know, you got to give it really long rest periods and that's fine for beef, but not for dairy. They, you know, but you can't all either, you you can't use the old style of our, you know, now retired New York state grazing expert who said, you know, go in at eight inches and leave four inches. Well, that's fine if you're feeding grain, but if you're grass fed, you're going to kill your cows. So you got to go in when the grass is, you know, 14, 16 inches tall, depending on what your fertility is, leave half of it if possible. Of course you want diversity, just like with sheep, you know, everything is going to bring something a little bit different. Keeping really good minerals in front of the cows is another big thing for us. Free access to kelp. That was, that was actually something I learned with the, with the beef cows. I never had an issue with pink eye, not once. Oh yeah. And when we were on our first farm, the neighbors had beefers they always had pink eye every single year and i'm like well your flies are coming over to my cows i'm not getting a single issue
3: yeah and the iodine is the key yeah. so and now the cows
2: being jerseys you know it's it's in their old lineage and their genetics that they they need kelp that's what they grew up with you know everybody on the island used to feed kelp to their jersey cows
1: island of so. jersey they did come from a place right like exactly. they didn't just magically exactly. appear here in the middle of the country <laughs> right yeah. right
2: right you know so yeah
1: that totally makes sense yeah
2: yeah you know and it doesn't matter where they are in the rest of the world it's still in their genetic makeup whether they come from new zealand canada somewhere in europe yeah. they still need the kelp
1: we hold on to we hold on to cellular memory, and there's all of this information that's coded in all of our cells that goes back, but, you know, generations and generations, and we don't even think about it. It's just right. there. Well, that
2: and and sure what gas. is the environment? Sure the epigenetics. Exactly. You know, there's a small study of it now. We don't. We still don't understand most of it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you, you know, and I don't know how long you've had your sheep on your farm, but it's been more than three years those offspring that have been born there are much more adapted to that land than the first animals you bought.
1: They definitely are. And, and we went from over the course of three years, we, we were in three different locations. And the, the first one was a, you know, pretty lush, nice soils valley. And all of this is within seven, six, seven miles. I mean, all three of these locations. Um, and so I thought, I'm a great grazer, you know, my sheep are fat. It's awesome. And then, and then we sold that farm and we rented for a while and we, and we got some contracts to graze some townland to, to manage some bed straw and some other invasive species that were, that was on this townland. And so I said, okay, I'm just going to graze the way I used to graze. Total mistake. Um, The land was re- it was upland and it was really, really low quality and it was sort of old bed straw. So it wasn't even like lush tasty bed straw it was just like the worst case bed straw and nothing under it and so they really hit i mean the the, those ewes took it hard (laughs) and then we were there for at the rental place for three years and then we bought this farm but that definitely prepped them for this farm which is also an upland very thin soiled farm and so now so we've been here this is our seventh um, summer grazing it here and not only is the land itself improving which is pretty awesome to see but also like the adaptation of the younger generations it's pretty solid now and and like the animals that I have that are the thinnest are the ones that were born at the rental farm I don't have any any more that were born at our original farm but but the but the the rental place like I'm looking at the skinny ones and yeah okay they're the older ones but also like yeah Mm-hmm. They're not adapted to this. It's it's but the lambs are fat,
3: yeah so yeah. I'm
1: like okay, you guys are the ones. right We're right. going to keep you.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah, exactly, exactly. one well, and hopefully you won't have to move again. And the animals. Oh, we're not planning be, to move again. Yeah. They'll they'll, <laughs> they'll keep improving the land, and they'll get it. You know, every generation will get
1: Better. more
2: locally adapted. I mean, you're from Vermont. Are you? Did you grow up in Vermont?
1: Yes. Yep.
2: So so have you heard yep. of the rare breed Randall lineback? Of oh yes, cow? absolutely. Hey. They're so, beautiful. So that gentleman, Randall, took yeah. a lot of different genetics from a lot of the Channel Islands yeah. and made that breed. And I forget how many years it was on that family farm. I think 70 years. They became very adapted to that farm.
3: Yeah.
2: And, you know, they did a study, genetic study on them. And they found out, yeah, you're related to, you know, Channel Island animals. They share some of those genetics, but it became very adapted to that farm, yeah. which the way it used to be yeah. you know each region had. I mean look at England they have how many breeds of sheep in England
1: <laughs> absolutely they're like breeds of sheep for this elevation like and then right. this elevation and this elevation yeah
2: right right
1: <laughs> well changing topics I wanted yep. I wanted to so the kids and the family like you've been doing this as long as you've been around the time you really started your family so how has that impacted what you do and how you do it and over time
2: in the beginning it was kind of a train wreck. <laughs>
1: <At> least,
2: <laughs> like, you know, we still have days of that. Yeah.
0: Um, um well not so bad. I mean, our oldest just turned sixteen. Yes, but okay? I mean
2: by the train wreck is so. this one's going this way, that one's going this way, that one wants to go that way. What <laughs> happened to the fourth one? That type of deal. <laughs> you know, um,
0: um But yeah, I don't know. The year like in the beginning it was, you know, sleepless nights and busy days. So I like I feel like the years were marked by who was I pregnant for like which like there was a hurricane I think the, the year that yeah. I was pregnant for Margaret yep. so she's a now I mean. but like I remember so th- that was like Labor Day weekend maybe and she was born in October so I was heavily pregnant harvesting potatoes on my hands and knees while he was working somewhere else to you know off-farm and my in-laws were there and the other two, I don't even know. They were just like running wild while we're just trying to harvest potatoes and having contractions the whole time. <laughs> or when, you know, you know, I don't remember which one where you were on a CSA delivery and there were the cows were out.
3: <laughs>
0: so the neighbors came and got me again, you know. 20 months pregnant (laughs) everybody's (laughs) like are you going into labor (laughs) everything always happened you know who was I pregnant for yeah pigs trotting down the driveway while I was leaving no one's home
2: (laughs) yeah yeah we had this we had this joke that when we had CSA I would deliver on Thursdays to Albany and something would go wrong Always every um, Thursday.
0: Thursday was the, the cows the would day get out, the pigs would get out, out.
2: <laughs> somebody would hit a chicken on the road, whatever oh, it was. No,
1: no oh, yeah. Yeah. oh yeah,
2: something, yeah.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. is there so, something I mean, that rises to the top for that? That's like a. <laughs>
2: Well, the, the best story, honestly, for me, because uh, I, I love talking about, well, I haven't talked about it in a while, but I don't think that was a Thursday delivery. But when the cows got out and they were behind the storms or not storms. Um,
0: no, that we weren't on a delivery. We were, it was like, we had put the kids to bed. Yeah, it was actually it was. quiet yes, in the house. Right.
2: It was like 1030. At night. And
0: we had like, I think Chris was taking a shower in one bathroom. I'm taking a bath yep. in the other one. And then there's knocking on the door, yep. which is never good. And, yeah. you know, it's, summertime and dark so it had to be 10 o'clock at night right so i'm able to get dressed first i go down the road and our neighbors were really good sports about the fact that our animals they weren't out all the time but no but, you know but
2: they would go to their house for whatever reason
0: yeah so <laughs> so i go down and they're all just in the neighbor's backyard and having in, a party yeah
2: they're in the they're in the pine trees behind the house too and
0: so i'm trying to corral the cows right so i get behind them trying to push them and they're just standing there like we don't really care right <laughs> you're we don't care if you're in our space yep. uh, chris <laughs> just comes to the top of the hill he's still on the road and he just like whistles and says come on girls come on emily who is yeah like the lead yep. and they all just follow him back <laughs> down the road like the Pied piper <laughs>
2: yep that one and then a different time this is when we just first started and we had the four beefers and the two family dairy cows. There had been a bear in the area. We were hilling potatoes. I was on the tractor. Sam was standing on the back as my, my weight to, to keep the, the hiller in place. And I'm kind of turning to the side, looking over my shoulder to make sure she doesn't fall off, make sure the potatoes are getting covered, trying to see where I'm going. Next thing I know, outside the gardens where we had some fence, I see the beefers. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? well, they must've got scooped by the bear and to they come came, over and find us.
0: They came and found us, yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it
0: wasn't like random running, though. Yeah, like, it was,
2: <laughs> yeah, they were just like, hey, there's something in there that's not supposed to be in there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, or, oh, you know, I gosh. mean, again, there's- But
0: at that place, we grazed the whole road. Like, yeah. all of our neighbors let us graze on their properties. Like, the farm we were on had been a dairy farm years ago. Like, the whole road was owned at one time by one family. Right. And slowly, you know, the, the pieces got parceled off. But the neighbors there were fantastic. Yeah. You know, our chickens and turkeys were everywhere. But we would we would walk. So it became like this big thing when we had to bring the cows back up towards our house from the far pasture.
3: Yep.
0: What, like three quarters of a mile that they would walk up the road. Yep. And so we would fence it off and all the neighbors would come and, yep. you know, watch us parade the cows up the road. Yep. <laughs>
2: yep. 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 Yeah, we've got yeah, but it's crazy because then memories. you know we went from that to going to Washington County where it's conventional dairies. Most of them are gone. So it's mostly confinement dairies. And all our neighbors are like, what are you doing grazing cows?
0: <laughs> Why do you have So those it was cows? a
2: total culture switch.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. We and, went from... and
2: they're like, What do you mean you're gonna take good hay ground out and you're gonna turn it into pasture? I'm like, Well, I need grazing ground and this is the closest to the barn. Yeah. So that's what yeah. I'm gonna do.
0: Well that was the difference between farming in in an area where
2: farming left in the 50s. Farming
0: had left. Mm-hmm. And then we moved yeah. to an area where agriculture is vibrant. And everybody was like, You guys are crazy. Why yep. would you do that?
1: <laughs> yep. Wow. What's your what's your takeaway from living in these different places in these and these like different communities? Like, what have you guys learned from so that? if That's we
2: funny. could afford to live in the Hudson Valley? I would probably be back over there. I grew up in Greene County. She grew up in Columbia County, opposite sides of the river. But yeah, that. Not the, too far from the Catskills.
0: Yeah. And it was, we just have great memories of their right. families there. And it was kind of nice to. To live in an area where there were people who really did appreciate the food, seeing the land used like, I but, mean, we had neighbors tell us it was like we brought it back to life. Like there, there's life on the road. And we
2: did. It was insane to see how much more wildlife there was on the farm, the second and third year up to the fifth year. I mean, it was insane. There was more deer and more turkeys, more songbirds. You know, the lady who owned it was like, yeah, this place is kind of sad. When I first met her, she's like, you know, it was a dairy farm at one time. And I think they sold out 20 some years before that. She was not from the area, bought the place. Was like oh you know i went to scotland and i want to have sheep here and i'm like well i'm not a sheep farmer so i'll grow vegetables and we'll diversify and she enjoyed every time she came you know to visit or whatever just to see the different crops that we had the different animals took some absolutely gorgeous photos of our roosters and whatnot and different chickens we had so you know it's crazy because again the dairy farmer down the road he grazed because his dad did that's the way you know they learned right, how to right. do it but yeah he didn't understand how I grazed with the rotational grazing, you know, it's just like, let them out in this section and they'll graze there for a week. And then they'll let them out in this section over here for this week. And then they would right. go out and brush hog and, you know, just, yeah. that's the way that they did it. So it was, you know, it was odd to him to see me doing
0: it. Well, and it is here too, you know, like, cause we still are in a more of an ag area. Right. So we're still like the eccentric people that,
1: don't farm the the right way. <laughs> you know, and I've got Jerseys,
2: so everybody else has Holsteins,
1: right? No,
2: well,
1: um, that just means you're a weirdo to begin with, and then exactly. you begin grazing, and that's like a whole extra layer of layer right. of that stuff. Right. And I'm organic,
2: right? And grass fed, right? So you know, I've got multiple layers of what is wrong with you, <laughs>
0: um, right? So I yeah, it, I guess that was to live in an area where where people actually. Kind of value it or will at least hear you out about like these are the actual health benefits you you actually can be healthier when you consume these farm products that yeah
2: i mean all of that plus you know the the animal products were absolutely fantastic yeah. they tasted real i mean we've had people back when we were doing chickens be oh. like i remember this is and This is an older woman telling me this that this is what chicken tasted like when i was a kid yeah. so they understood the quality you know, and then, of course, I can go into the whole spiel of why I rotationally graze and how I sequester carbon. And, you know, I'm I'm, I'm starting back up the carbon and nitrogen cycle. And, you know, going down that road, too, if people are willing to listen. Um, where, again, because most people there remembered their grandfather or their father farming, but they don't. Or, you know, maybe they had an even older ancestor that farmed. You know, we know a family that's still down there. Uh, the father passed away a couple of years ago, unfortunately. It's been the same family since this, before the Civil War. Oh, wow, yeah. And they're the last generation. Neither one of them have kids. Yep. And they're like, what are we going to do with this?
1: Yeah.
2: You know, but.
1: Hopefully find more farmers, right? <laughs> well, again, it's just Hopefully.
2: the unfortunate thing is the Hudson Valley is really expensive. It's like yeah. Vermont, honestly. Yeah. Vermont yeah, is yeah. expensive, no, too. We've expensive. we've looked at farms over there and we're like, yeah, how do you cash flow that? <laughs> so but yeah back to the
1: kids mostly off farm jobs
2: yeah yeah you know back to the kids they you know the boys are were the oldest they don't seem to want to have too much to do with it they'll help where the girls they grew up more with the dairy cows yeah like i said my you know what's she loving now 11 almost 12 year old daughter she's in the barn all the time with me
0: yeah yeah Um, so she was you know yeah like preschool, when we started dairying, right, right. Catherine was still a baby. So, right. um, you know, they've only known, all they remember is dairy farming. Yeah. The boys can remember the time before we did this.
2: The pre-dairy, right. yeah. Right, right. And and my daughter, Margaret, the older one, she has a connection with animals too. She's really, she, she, either she's going to be a farmer, she's going to be a vet or she's going to be a wildlife biologist, one of those. (laughs) Or maybe all
1: three, you never know.
2: Maybe, I mean, who knows exactly, you know, Um, although she did hear eight years of vets, you know, eight years of school to be a vet, she's like, no, I don't want to do that, so, (laughs) you know.
1: um, I don't know, that's shorter than a lifetime farming, just saying.
3: It is, but when you're
1: 12, that sounds like a really long time. Yeah, you yeah. know, I'm yeah. I'm a recovering veterinary, you know, pre-vet person who became a farmer. So I I've looked at both sides of that one too. Right. You Like one final question: What do you guys do to get time together? <laughs> do you still it's move events to get time together? Or
2: no,
3: not now. Not now.
1: Move the cows. Yeah, sometimes it's that.
2: Yeah, some, I mean, sometimes it'll be that, but. You know, we can catch a snippet here and there. Summertimes are a little harder because the kids are home. Our two older boys now work off arm. We don't have family in the area. It used to be that we could, you know, get a, a day where, you know, yeah, somebody would somebody take us, you know. I don't know. After 19 years of marriage, I guess we don't need a whole lot of time. <laughs> we do need some. There's no doubt. Like, we went out for our anniversary this past Sunday.
0: we well, we'll you know, time to have a little date or... Yeah, go for a walk. Yeah. Yeah.
2: You know, we used to go out for lunch. I don't know. Every other other week or so, we'd pick a day and go out to lunch. And you find these little snippets. That's really what it is. And I've never been a really big, let's go on a vacation type person. You know, I can take four hours and go deer hunting or a few hours to go trout fishing. That's, That's my break. You know. But for us personally, it's it's a little more challenging. But you know, we just take those times when we can get them. You know, I think that's unfortunately what most farmers do. And you know, and today it's again, it's one of those things we're running into same same issues that a lot of other businesses are. We're having a hard time finding help. You know, um, people don't want to do this, and the ones that are doing it are doing it. They're not they're not looking for part time work. Right. So. I mean, I don't know. What are other farmers telling you? What do they do for, for a lone time?
1: Do you have suggestions? Yeah, yeah. Do you have suggestions? Well, that's a, that's a really fair question. So, pretty much everybody, totally that I've ever talked to, totally owns that it's really hard. <laughs> but, but I I feel like the the stories of folks who've been pretty successful at it. They schedule it like they they either whether it's whether it's a vacation together or it's a vacation or a break of any kind like sometimes they're apart and sometimes they do them together but but the idea is the break from the farm mm-hmm. piece of it but they they schedule it uh and they commit to something that makes them do it so because you know like the the sort of old adage like if you want to have personal time or you know a date you have to schedule it like and that is so easy to just say oh we're going to do this thing and then like break that commitment to do that thing because we're like oh we don't really feel like doing that thing right Right. but when you put down like i don't know a deposit on a plane ticket or (laughs) or or like an airbnb or a or something where you've actually got a little bit of commitment that is that is what i i hear people being like okay It's not a matter of whether we're going to, it's not a matter of whether we're going to make the time for the thing. We just committed to making time for the thing. Then it changes the question to, so what systems do we have to put in place? What things do we have to do or not do because we're doing this? We've committed to doing this. And I, I think that has that has shifted my brain too, because I have not been historically good at vacation, just ask my husband, and I have not been good at that, and we actually now have, like, a, a yearly commitment, which I don't think we've achieved yet this year, so we really need to get going on that, uh, to have, like, like, three long weekends over the course of the year, like, can we just find, like, something and it could be a local Airbnb, it could be something, but it's like, could we find three long weekends that we could spend, you know, some time together.
2: Right. And, so are uh, you so are you putting that on your grazing chart? You you had mentioned you talked to Troy. So <laughs> that's that's his yeah, thing. That's
0: his grazing that, chart. That's his grazing chart
2: see. is he's like, you know, I've got my daughter's wedding or I've got this trip I'm going on or I'm going to speak here. Yes. You know, and then you and then you set up your grazing around it
1: yes in theory like I'm actually really good about and I've been a proponent of the grazing chart for a really long time like when I was with extension I like really I think it's so good and I have been a terrible person at actually implementing that Mm. (laughs) but what I have been good at is writing down those really important events what I personally have not been as good at is is actually planning it out, the penciling part of it. Like I've used those visuals to say, okay, I know the animals need to be here. We're doing an on-farm event and we want the animals to be nearby so that the people can see them. Or this is, I'm gonna be at this, actually I'm doing this now. Like I'm gonna be at in South Dakota in August. I think that actually might be the perfect time to wean the sheep, although I don't tell my family because they will be home and I will not be. So maybe right. that's not a good time to wean the lambs. Right. Right. But but it, it makes me, you know, think about how, okay, this will be we'll be in this place, we'll do some bale grazing, or we'll be in. And I recognize it is really a different a different deal when when you're working with dairy where you really want it to be consistent, but but it those kinds of commitments have forced me to find systems. And I wouldn't find the systems if I didn't get forced to do that. And yeah, that, that part's actually been really good. Like I didn't have a lamb camera. I got into a meeting. I I committed to something um, that I'd already done my breeding. Like I knew exactly when I was going to be lambing and I had to do, I had to be, in Albany, actually, it smacked up for three days, smacked Mm -hmm. up in the middle of lambing um, one year. And I was like, terrified by that. How could that possibly work? Well, I finally bought a lamb camera. And it was like, tapped into our Wi Fi on the house. And and I could have a conversation with my farm care person. And I could see if there was a problem. And, you know, those are the kinds of things like I wouldn't have put those systems in place if I hadn't committed to doing this thing and then been like, "Oh crap, Like how do I how do I do that?" <laughs> so I don't know, right. That's how I hear people do it. It's <laughs> one right. of the strategies anyway. <laughs> and sometimes it's helpful to, to be partnered up with somebody who's not a farmer because they uh, remind us. So yeah, like I, you were
2: saying, yeah. part of the plan, too, for us is eventually to go seasonal.
1: But
2: yeah. to to get to that, it's you know, still five, six years away, you know. Um, yeah. But that that'll give me a break from milking cows. Still still have to be taken care of. But at that point, hopefully you, then we can be like, Okay, now let's, you know, go to Europe for a week because we have someone who can just make sure the cows are inside the fence or make sure they have feed. Yeah, whatever it might be. So Yeah,
1: I get that totally um, exactly. But you know, yeah. everything takes time. It does, doesn't and it? Like, you know, and like you said, infra-
2: infrastructure is huge and it's costly. Yeah. So, you know, time, time and money—the are two things we never have enough of as farmers.
1: Yeah. So. Yeah, those uh, are the those are the biggest limitations.
2: Yeah. Yeah, they are, and it doesn't yeah. matter what type of farming you're in. That's that's your
1: limitations. <laughs> So true. I think those are just human limitations, right? We don't have enough time. We don't have enough money. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Especially, especially the time.
1: <laughs> yeah, the time we'll, is the biggest are, thing, isn't it?
2: There yeah. are some people who have plenty of money, but not enough time. So. Yeah,
1: that's true. All but, the money in the world doesn't actually get you more time. Thank you so much, both of you. Thank you so much for this time. All right. Well, thank, well, thank you, you, you so much. Thank you so much, you guys. I appreciate Thanks it so and yeah, stay dry.
3: Great you. Yeah, you too.
1: <laughs> Thanks again to Chris and Samantha for spending time with me to share their origin story. Um, some of the topics that raised that were raised today that I just wanted to touch on again, the uh, the concept of direct marketing versus um, focusing on production and then doing a, a more commodity marketing. I think it's really easy and exciting at the beginning of a small farm or a homestead to just keep diversifying and to go direct to our friends and neighbors. There's this super attractive side also to seeing somebody else who's burning up social media, you know, with their direct marketing presence or the year round CSA model. And there are people who knock that model out of the park. There absolutely are. But that model is not for everyone. Some folks just really want to focus on producing the very best product possible. And it's not easy to do both. For example, I, I love creating the connection with people. I love direct marketing, but sometimes that has meant I haven't focused on production and then I have a lower quality product to sell, which is kind of the exact opposite of what we want to sell, whether we're going commodity market or direct market. Either way, um, not everybody is good at doing both things. And it's helpful to reevaluate that for ourselves from time to time to figure out are we happy direct marketing? Do we want to do that? Do we not want to do that? Do we want to focus on production? Um, next topic. So raw milk. So so we haven't talked with a lot of raw milk producers on this um, podcast yet, but raw milk regulations vary by state. And I know that we have listeners in all of the U.S. and uh, all of the U.S. states and some in Canada. And raw milk might be something that you're interested in producing for sale. So Among all of the possible livestock-based products to sell from your farm, the rules and regulations around raw milk vary the most from state to state. Like, seriously, if you want to direct market raw beef or raw chicken, the rules are super clear. Whether it should be or not, and I know there's lots of arguments it should not be, But milk is a really different thing, at least the way that the law has treated that from state to state. So I included a link in the show notes to a state-by-state listing of the raw milk laws. This is for U.S. states um, to help you figure out what works for you because it can vary wildly. Sometimes it is incredibly illegal. Sometimes it is legal sold off the farm. Sometimes it's legal in a store. Sometimes it's only legal if you sell it as pet food. There's all different kinds of levels and I just want you to be well informed um, for any decisions that you make going forward. So a third topic that that we touched on was just the evolution from, from homesteading to focusing on dairy as a business and the focus on like narrowing in on fewer things to produce. Um, this is kind of aligned with the direct marketing to production topic too. Like there's a, a lot of I think direct marketing, lots of things, and and narrowing into producing just a few things, um, is a, a bit of a of a natural progression uh, for some folks. So so few businesses really do a good job at a lot of different things, and and the folks that do a really good job at a lot of different things, they tend to have big. Um, they have big uh, employee rosters, <laughs> people who can be in charge of the different um, the phases or the different, um, the different types of things that, that the business does. When we do a lot of different things, like some of those things take more time, some of them are more or less profitable, you know, there are things that, that we may want to do but they just never seem to gel for maybe our soil type or maybe for our topography or maybe we just, they always fall to the bottom of our list, maybe. So when we're homesteading, um, when we're homestead style or or scale, like part of the goal is to see how many different things we can do. I I I, I feel that, like I get that. Um, it's really exciting to be able to do lots of different kinds of things. Um, I just really appreciated the Chemnas talking about some of that give and take around focusing in on a system and a product that they want to to evolve as the core of their business, um, picking something that fit their needs around that whole direct marketing, you know, um, focusing on production, you know, that dichotomy of things, um, and then just allowing themselves to take a break on some of those other things that they that they do. And, and maybe that just resonates with me because I'm really feeling that myself right now, um, as I have been narrowing down in the things that I do, but I've just, I've seen this cycle over and over. I've seen it in, 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 you know, business meetings. I've seen it in, in extension and farm and and ranch visits, um, TA stuff. And, you know, for most businesses, we can do a really good job of maybe two or three things. And it doesn't mean don't do those other things at all, but it might mean shrinking down their expectations or their time commitment or their, their investment um, or even taking a break for a year or two um, or longer. If, if we stop doing a thing and we realize we don't miss it and um, it didn't make as much money anyway, uh, maybe it's a thing we don't bring back. Um, and then the, the last topic that I just wanted to touch on was um, – this random stray voltage thing. So I I know that we don't focus on technical issues as much in this podcast conversation since there's some really terrific podcasts out there already who focus on livestock and grazing topics. But if you've never heard about issues surrounding stray voltage, um, I included a couple of resources in the show notes, including um, Dr. Paul Detloff's book um, that Chris references in the conversation. Great book. Um, And and also... um, I dropped in um, a link at the, at the, um, in the show notes as well that is from Wikipedia just to give you a broad understanding of it. Stray voltage isn't common, but it isn't uncommon either. And it can kill a person or a cow or, or it can simply create this mysterious, crazy set of symptoms to treat. Um, and this just feels like exactly one of those things you'd know about if you grew up on a farm. But not a thing that you'd know about if you didn't grow up on a farm, Um, for example. So anyway, so check the link on that. Um, Yeah. So what parts of this conversation resonated with you? Um, Reach out with your comments or questions at um, choosingtofarm at gmail.com. Check the show notes for links to Clover Bliss Farms, the Chemnas, contact info, um, as well as uh, those other links uh, to the things that we talked about. So As always, if you'd like to support the show, please share it with a friend, consider supporting our Patreon, also links in the show notes, um, or leave a public review. Uh, They really help. And those public reviews, they're free. They just they take a couple minutes of your time. And they help build our listenership a lot. So thanks, everyone. hope you have a great week. And I will see you next time with a new conversation. I hope you'll join us. Here's my husband, Chris Sargent to play us out. We'll